like you to turn to the book of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. Let me ask you this question while you're getting there. How many of you have tuned into the Lifetime channel? Nobody. <laughs> you have no idea what I'm talking about. Oh, we have some folks over here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lifetime channel is owned by the Disney Corporation. And uh, here's where their stated purpose is. It is committed to offering the highest quality entertainment and information programming and advocating a wide range of issues affecting women and their families. So it's geared towards women. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. They need TV to watch too, I guess. <laughs> Just a couple weeks ago, the Lifetime Channel canceled the ministry of Dr. D. James Kennedy. And here's the announcement they made. They have decided to no longer air controversial content on the cable channel, and as a result, Lifetime barred D. James Kennedy Ministries, DJKM, half-hour Christian broadcasts, and, and the name of the place was Truths That Transform, and they stipulated that DJKM programming must agree to their new terms, citing specific restrictions on the coverage of abortion and left-wing financier George Soros. So, Lifetime had run a documentary on George Soros. I'm not here to talk to you about George Soros. But they ran a documentary on George Soros, supporting him and the things he was doing, and D. James Kennedy spoke out against him and spoke frequently on abortion. They've been canceled. They've been canceled. Now, I've been telling you for a while that the ground is shifting beneath our feet. And we need to be aware of what's going on. So the, the question is not whether or not there are people in the culture that are opposing the church. The question is, how will we respond to it? Now, the accepted response has become, has become in a number of forms. Nasty letters to the, to the network. Angry Posts on social media. Or how about this one? Let's boycott. Let's boycott Lifetime Channel. Let's boycott Disney. And we struggle with these things. We don't know how to react. And as the church universal, we are not accustomed to this sort of thing happening. So we're not quite sure how to react. It's okay. We're learning. There's a lot left to be learned, but I want to tell you this today. God knows, God knows that we would struggle with these things. And what he wants us to know today is that he's still in control, amen? He's, he's still sitting on the throne. He didn't wake up yesterday morning and go, Oh my, did you see what's happening on the Lifetime channel? You're not surprised by this. Matter of fact... He told us that this would happen. And the truth I want you to know today is that God has this. God has this. It is not beyond his control. It is not beyond his authority. He has it. He told us it was coming, and he will use it for his glory. 
So we're going we're to take a look at this today. And the, the context for our passage is that Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He was with them for three years, but he's headed towards Jerusalem. He knows he's going to go to the cross. He knows he's going to die, and he's, he's kind of telling the disciples, look, here's what's going to happen. They don't get the whole thing. Up until, you know, the first two and a half years or so, Jesus had been doing all the ministry and now he's kind of turning things over to them and teaching them how to respond to the people around him, how to carry on the ministry after he goes. And he knows they're going to have a tough time. So the last time we were together in Luke, we looked at the myth of privacy. And, and we reminded ourselves that God knows everything, and we found out four things that we shouldn't do. We shouldn't lie. We shouldn't lead a hippo, uh, hypocritical life. We shouldn't do one thing and say another. We shouldn't cry. We shouldn't shout down in anger those who oppose God. We shouldn't deny. We don't deny that we are precious children of God and that he loves us without limit. And we shouldn't be shy about putting our faith on display in whichever manner we put our faith on display. So today we're going to find out that we shouldn't be anxious. The, the, the title of today's sermon is Don't Be Anxious. This is part 35 of the ongoing series in Luke. God's love for all people. And we're going to learn how not to be anxious in examining two poverties. And we're going to look at the poverty of wealth in verses 13 through 21. And then we're going to look at the poverty of worry in 22 through 34. So let's take a look at this poverty of wealth, starting in verse 13. Now Jesus is addressing the crowd. He's had a confrontation with the Pharisees. Uh, he's trying to teach the disciples. Uh, he's trying to respond to the crowd. And in the middle of all this, in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, notice what the crowd thinks about Jesus Christ. He's a teacher. And that's good. That's good. There's a certain amount of respect for a teacher. But we've got to be honest. I mean, you remember teachers, right? Some of you are experiencing them right now. And sometimes we listen to the teacher, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we agree with the teacher, sometimes we don't. I mean, the teacher, we can give or take, we can judge the teacher based on his personality, on whether or not he's like us, whether or not he likes the things that we like, a bunch of criteria on how would govern how we deal with our teacher. But, but a Lord is something totally different, isn't it? They're calling him teacher. They're not calling him Lord. Lord becomes Lord and King of your life. So that's where the crowd is. And we know they're fickle. We know that they're, they're looking for signs and wonders and that sort of thing. So they're teacher. And so this guy says, hey, hey, good teacher, tell my brother to give me the inheritance. Now, the, the inheritance laws in, in Judea uh, were complicated, but basically what it consisted of is the elder brother of the family always got a double share, and the other brothers didn't. Uh, needless to say, that led to a lot of arguments, a lot of dialogue, that sometimes there were hurt feelings, and generally the family would then go call upon a rabbi to come in and arbitrate. So, so this is kind of what this guy is saying. Except he's asking Jesus to go a step further. He's, done, he's not saying, come in and arbitrate between me and my brother. He's saying, come in and settle this. 
We don't know any of the details of what was going on with the family, but this guy wants Jesus to make his brother do something. So, in verse 14, But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, man, that, that, that comes from the word anthropo, can be harsh or can be gentle. In this context, it is harsh. It is a rebuke. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm not here to settle your personal disputes. Did you think that's why I came? So I could be on your side and do the things that you would like me to do? I'm not here from that, for that. Now, we can learn a lot from this. Can't we? Don't we want Jesus to fix the people in our lives? Oh, Lord, make my spouse more holy. Oh, Lord, make my kids do this. Oh, Lord, my boss is treating me terribly. Do something about him. Jesus is not here to settle our personal disputes. As a matter of fact, if we read Scripture accurately, we will understand that Jesus is here to fix me. He's here to fix you, not the people around you. He'll take care of the people around you. But Jesus is always saying, look to your own heart. Examine yourself. Don't examine the people around you. He's not here to be judge and jury on your side. So instead of taking one side or the other, Jesus does what he always does. He takes the opportunity to teach. And he said to them, now he's talking to everybody in the crowd. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. So what he's really saying is this young man that wants me to decide in his favor is greedy. He wants stuff that he's not getting and he might not be entitled to. So what, what, So take care of on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He says it's not about the inheritance. It's not about the things that you own. Now, we all know this. We all know that. It's a, it's a Christian platitude. We understand that, but it's hard to walk out, isn't it? I mean, we're surrounded by material things. We, we're convinced we need them. We're convinced we need to accumulate them. It's hard to apply to our lives. But Jesus wants these people around him to see that Real life, true life, is about God, not our stuff. It's focused on God. It's not about possessions. So, so to illustrate this, Jesus tells this story, verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. So here's a guy that owns some land, and it's rich. It's, you know, the crops are all over the place, and, and he's doing well. In verse 17, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. He's got so much stuff that there's no more storage room for him. Now, I've got to tell you something. The wisdom of my wife. I used to have a storage space. And I, I, I had excess stuff that I would put in that storage space. And one day, my wife said to me, 
Is this where we have come as a society, that we have so much stuff that we have to go rent space to put it in? And I went, oh, <laughs> you're right. I mean, it's down in the store. You know, every time we were looking for something, it's down in the store. So we never went down there to get it. It was too much trouble. So, so this guy's got the same problem. He's got more stuff than he's got storage for. So in verse 18, the man says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I'll make bigger storage spaces. I'll go down to stores all and rent the largest space they have. They've got elevators there and little carts that I can carry it in. Verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you'll have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, this is an idiom that the Jews would have understood and that the Greeks among them would have understood as well because what it meant is enjoy the pleasures of life. Enjoy the abundance of your life. Make these comforts and pleasures more important than anything else in your life. Now, listen to me carefully. There's nothing wrong with being comfortable. There's nothing wrong with owning things. Things start going awry when we put our ownership and our comfort above God in our lives. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. Priorities in our lives are important. And we find that out because in the parable, God responds to this man and he says to him, Fool! This is a harsh rebuke. Jesus, now, Jesus just used this word in chapter 11, verse 40, to describe the Pharisees. And back then, what we found out was it means a man who neither listens to nor obeys God. It's a judgment. So God says to him, You fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You're going to die tonight, and where's all this stuff going to go? What's going to happen to it when you're gone? And in verse 21, Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now notice what he, the phrasing he uses here. It's not a bad thing to lay up treasures for yourself. It only becomes bad when you're poor towards God and rich in the world. It's all about priorities. This man is looking for riches in all the wrong places. This focus upon possessions above everything else creates a poverty in his life, a poverty of spirituality, a poverty of holiness, a poverty of sanctification, a poverty of a deeper relationship with God. And why does that happen? How can that happen to us? It can. It happens to us when we start depending on these things. It happens to us when we feel at a loss, when we begin to lose them, when we begin to define ourselves by them. Yet all the possessions in the world will not extend our life one single second. In the moment that that happens, we will stand before 
our judge. And he's not going to ask us what we accomplished. He's not going to wonder how much we have in our 401k or in the bank. He's not going to go, tell me what you've done with your life. What have you built? How much have you accumulated? He's going to say, tell me what you thought about my son, Jesus Christ, who died for you. It's the only question that matters at that point. If we're not careful, our riches can become a poverty, one that is eternal. Now, Jesus, we we need to understand this. Jesus is not condemning the brother who asked about the inheritance. If we understand the situation, Jesus is giving this man an opportunity to examine himself and repent. He's saying, here's time to reassess your life. You're worried about this inheritance? Do you realize you could die right now? If you stood before the judge, what would you say to him? I didn't get my inheritance. When he's on the verge standing in front of the one person that he can help him inherit the entire kingdom of God. He's worried about whether or not he got a share of the barn. He's saying, here's your opportunity to turn around and repent. I was, I was in Martinsburg, Virginia, um, visiting the family of a man who was dying. And uh, got a great veterans hospital up there. And he was lucid. And he asked his family to leave the room. He wanted to talk to me for a minute. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm a successful man. And I've been lying in this bed for almost a month. And my time is near. And it was. He said, I realize, I realize that everything I've done amounts to absolutely nothing. My family is what's important. My love for my family is important. Will you tell them that? I didn't say anything. And then he said, I'm worried that I'm about to stand before my Lord and that I haven't, I haven't turned to him soon enough to be in his presence. <laughs> I just grabbed his hand and said, Brother, you're there. You're there. That's all he wants from you is your trust and your faith in him. And I'm going to call your family back in here and you come in and tell them how much you love them because they're going to count this moment as precious. And the Lord counts this moment as precious as well. You can go in peace. He just sat there and cried. But there's a guy that had it all. And in his final moments, he realizes it doesn't amount to anything. He hasn't accomplished anything without the love of his family, without the love of his Lord. In verse 22, you know, we would take a look at this poverty of worry. There's the poverty of, of riches. All the riches in the world make you the poorest person in the world if you don't have the right priority in life. So move on to the poverty of worry. Jesus wants to show the disciples, the people there, what all this means and how to deal with a heavenly focus in their lives. Verse 22, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, because of all this, because of what you just heard, because of what you just saw, I tell you, do not be anxious. 
Now, there's a couple different words used in this passage. So when we hear anxious, we need to hear concerned. Most of us think worry. That can mean that. But he uses worry a little bit later on. He says, don't be anxious. Don't be concerned about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Jesus is not saying that material things are evil. What he's saying is not to be overly concerned about them. So we've got the message on the material things. He says, don't let your material things consume you. But we're going to see in just a little bit that this applies to more than just the things that we accumulate. It applies to the situations that we're in, the circumstances that we're in as well. Jesus is saying, don't be concerned about your circumstances. God has this. So to illustrate his point, he uses a rabbinical tactic of using the lesser to emphasize the greater. It was, it was a way of illustrating things. And he starts with some essentials. In verse 23, he says, For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Now we know that. We, we've learned that much already. It, we might have a hard time putting that into practice, but, but we know it. So he starts out with life is more than what you're eating and what you're wearing. Then he goes into verse 24, Consider the ravens, now we're talking about birds, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. Yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? It's an incredible statement. Do you realize, he says to his disciples, how much God loves you? He's taking care of these birds that are flying around all over the place. And he loves you more. Let's get some perspective here. It makes it clear how precious God's children are. And verse 25, it mentioned something we mentioned a little bit earlier. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, the wording here is kind of uh, descriptive because it really is, can add a single cubit. You know, a cubit, you remember cubits with the ark and with the temple and everything. It's about 18 inches. It was generally the length of a man's forearm. So it's saying, how can, can you add another 18 inches to your life? Can you add, an, it, it's about the, the, the length of an average step. Can you add one more step to your life? And if you're unable to do that, because we can't. If you're unable to do that, why are you worried about all this other stuff? You can't even do that. Verse 26, if you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Why are you worried? Why are you concerned about everything else that is going on around you? That's what the rest is. And then verse 27, he starts with the lesser to the greater again. Consider the lilies. Now, the word for lilies here means wildflowers how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now some think that the lilies that they're talking about are the purple anemone. And he likens it to Solomon's robes, which were royal purple. He said, look at these flowers. They're far more beautiful than, than the most spectacular clothing in the world. Then he says, oh, you of little faith. Actually, I'm sorry, verse 28. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you? 
Grass was used for kindling. It was beautiful when it was growing, but at some point it gets cut, and they use it to start fires. It had no value. I like to buy my wife flowers. I did it for Valentine's Day. She likes them. She appreciates them. But you know what? Those flowers sit in a vase for three, four, five days. Maybe ten if we fed them and put water in them. But they have no value. And what Jesus is saying is that you're far more valuable than those things. Be careful. And then he has a statement, oh, you have little faith. Now, he's not telling them, and if you've been with us for a while, you know what we're talking about here. But he's not telling them, oh, you just don't have enough faith. You need to get more faith and these things won't be a problem. You're deficient in the faith area. What he's saying is, listen carefully because I'm trying to teach you something because you're still a baby in your faith. And if you listen to what I'm saying, you will grow in your faith. You will mature in your faith. And these things will begin to fade away into the background. Verse 29, And do not seek what you are to eat for what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. Now as he speaks to the Jews, the Jews would hear all the nations in the world as being the pagan nations. Saying, these are, these are the things that the ungodly people look for. You shouldn't be concerned with them. And your Father knows that you need Him. Instead, seek His kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Now he's saying, put your focus on Christ. Put your focus on God. Put your focus on walking in a manner worthy of your calling. And these things will be added to you. Now he doesn't say, he's not promising them that they'll get rich if they just pretend that God is more important than everything else. What he's saying is, put your eyes on the kingdom and you'll have everything. You'll have everything. You'll have all creation will be part of your inheritance. Instead, seek his kingdom. And then in verse 32, he gives some reassurance. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So in verse 33, he says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroyed. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What an incredible encouragement. Set your heart on heaven. Set your heart on the kingdom of God. And everything else will fade into the background. It's a beautiful teaching. Now notice he used the word worry here. We've seen the word anxious three times in the passage. And worry once. So, the concept of the word anxious and anxiety means to be concerned over and to be spurred into action. Now, so There's a subtle difference here. Because the way they used the word worry was to be held in suspense, to be fretting over the circumstance. And then there's a difference. Because anxiety can cause us to move out ahead of God. When I was a kid, six or seven years old, you know, I grew up in a Greek household. And I don't know if you've ever seen my big fat Greek wedding, but they've got Windexes all over the place. For my grandfather, it was baking soda. If you broke your arm, put some baking soda on it, it'll be okay. 
Yeah, if you had a cold or a cough, it was Vicks VapoRub. Okay, now I don't know if you have experienced Vicks VapoRub, but it is a unique experience. Because as soon as I got a sniffle, my grandfather, we lived with him, and he would take Vicks VapoRub and put it underneath my nostrils. And I hated it. I hated it. And so if I found myself sniffling, anxiety would rise up in my life, and I would go hide the Vicks VapoRub. I was getting out ahead of the situation because I hated it. Didn't matter that it cleared me up and I was able to sleep at night. I just hated the experience. Well, anxiety does that. It causes us to act apart from God. And what worry does for us is it causes us to distrust God. We need to think about this for a second because we all believe God is sovereign, amen? But I think we'd have to be honest with ourselves and admit that sometimes we're kind of worried about what he might do. That things might not turn out the way we want them to. I know God is sovereign, but I'm not comfortable in this situation. Worry causes us to distrust God. I don't know if I'm going to like the outcome. Worrying and anxiety cause us a poverty. Either we're acting apart from God or we distrust Him. So let's, let's take another look at these two poverties. Like the poverty of wealth can cause us to put material possessions and, and stuff above God and our priorities. And we have this poverty of worry and anxiety. Anxiety can cause us to take things in our own hands, and worry can cause us to distrust God. Let me give you Webster's definition of poverty. It is a renunciation as a member of a religious order of the right as an individual to own property. Now, Jesus is kind of laying that out here for us, but he's, he's taking it a couple steps further. He wants us to renounce the, the idolatry of earthly things. doesn't mean we have to give everything away, but we don't depend on them. We don't define ourselves by what we own. We practice a poverty of wealth. We turn away from the material possessions and turn towards God. We say, you're the most important thing. If I lose my house, if I lose my car, if I lose my job, if I lose the things around me, it's okay because I have you. And furthermore, we practice a poverty of worry. We renounce our alleged right to worry, to be anxious, to be agitated, to be angry about the situation around it, to distrust our Father. We renounce our right to take action apart from Him. Action fueled by anger, fueled by self-righteousness and a smugness that God is on our side. Tell my brother to give me my part of the inheritance. You see, the people at the Lifetime Channel don't need our anger. It's not productive. It's not going to help. They don't need our boycott. Somehow the church 
in the 21st century has taken on the role of punishing people that don't believe in God. So let's boycott them. We'll show them something. It's an incredible moment in the history of mankind. The church is successfully building walls between itself and the mission field. The people that are unsaved. The people that need to hear about Jesus Christ. The answer to the problem at the Lifetime Channel is the gospel. Get the board of directors at Disney saved and see what happens. Boycott them and see what kind of anger comes up. And I've got to tell you something. There are 93 million homes that subscribe to the Lifetime Channel. 93 million. I was talking to a friend just this week. He's an atheist. You've heard about him before. Hope you're listening, brother. (laughs) He said, you know, your church has been fighting a cultural war for a long time. I said, yeah. He said, you lost. You lost. We have. And the only reason we've lost is we've put our sights on the wrong thing. We have forsaken the gospel for a bunch of issues. People tell us, oh, you're losing your right for this. We go, oh, no, we're going to fight for it. People say, oh, the church is no longer there. Oh, yes, we are. We'll show you. We'll boycott you. I say give up the cultural war for the real war, the war for people's souls. The war for the people that are on the fast track. They're on the high-speed train to hell. And we're worried about their politics. The world doesn't need our wall. It needs our compassion. The world needs the mercy of God. All the possessions in the world, and listen to this carefully, all the techniques of the world, all of the, the machines of the world are not going to fix this. All the protests, all the boycotts, all the anger, all of the angry social media postings is not going to save those people. The gospel will. But you know what? That's not always easy. We're not all evangelists, amen. But we are a body. And we can support each other. We can encourage each other. We can pray for each other. We can prepare ourselves for that time that that may be much closer than we think where we might have to make a stand for our faith. And a lot of us are nervous about that. I know many of the people that we have here, many of the people that we have listening, have been asked to sign some sort of diversity statement where they work. It's closer than we think, folks. And we get nervous about it. But what does the Lord say about this? What does He say about this moment of testimony? We saw it in Luke 12, earlier in the chapter. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
So do you see how Jesus' teaching is moving along this path of equipping the disciples to handle the environment they're about to be in? He's doing the same thing for us. He's showing us what to do. The man in the crowd wanted to draw Jesus into worldly affairs. Jesus says, all of the worldly things in creation will not help you on judgment day. Neither will worry or anxiety or anger. Jesus' attitude is this. You try to draw me into worldly affairs, well, I'm trying to draw you into heavenly affairs. Keep your eye on things above. And understand that God has this. God has this. It's not flying out of control. He knows that the best thing for us as His children is to hold Him as our highest priority, as our heart's fondest desire, and as our highest ideal. He doesn't need our action apart from Him. He wants us to trust Him, particularly when it's hard to do it. He wants us to recognize Him as our loving, protecting, providing, preserving Father in Heaven. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks. We know You have it, Father. But we confess that these things are difficult. We confess that sometimes we're led by our emotions. Oh, Lord, we thank You for Your patience. Thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your mercy. Give us eyes to see the things that are happening around us. Give us eyes to see that the battle is not here. It's not between the left and the right and the up and the down and, and this and that. It's up in the heavenlies, Father, and you're engaged in it, and you have already won that battle. Let us rest in you, Father. Let us be led by your Spirit, empowered and emboldened him to speak about your Son, Jesus Christ, and the path to salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to thank you for coming today. It looks like every week we get a few more people. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you. God bless you.